You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Today's no interest, no exception. <laughs> we are going to be talking about beauty, culture, and play all together. My guest is Dr. Fairtown. He's the assistant professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. He has a PhD in theology at the University of St. Andrews. He's a member of the Honors College Factory and chair of the Apologetics Department. Both areas of service allow him to explore the intersection of theology, philosophy, and the arts, helping students to understand the Lordship of Jesus over every square inch of creation. His primary areas of research are in Christian theology and theological aesthetics. He is especially interested in doing theology through the arts, which examines how we can how the arts can reorient and enrich our understanding of Christian truth. Dr. Town, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Ah, oh, very glad to go swimming in these deep waters with you, Nick. Thank you for the reference, too. Um, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yes, well, I um, I grew up in a, a Christian home, and um, you know, I was, uh, grew up in part of the life of the church. And, and throughout my middle school and high school years, I was blessed with a really wonderful youth ministry with some fine... Uh, counselors that you know challenged me to go further and not take my faith lightly, and um, answered some you know questions and doubts that I, I had, and helped me to grow intellectually as well as spiritually. And uh, throughout this time, I felt a call to ministry of some sort, and and so after college, I went to seminary, and my understanding of what Christian ministry could look like was pretty limited. It, you know, either you could be a senior pastor and preach a lot, or you could, and marry and bury and that sort of thing, or you could be a missionary perhaps. Um, but at seminary, one thing I discovered is a lot of my professors uh, felt similar calls to ministry, but were, you know, working in teaching and writing and scholarship as well as uh, serving in forms of pastoral ministry. And and so I, I felt that you know, I should pursue this possibility because I had fallen in love with with theology and and philosophy and the ways to answer deep questions people had and help them to love Christian truth and beauty. And so I um, went on after seminary to a school called the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where they have a special focus on uh, not just theology, but on theology and the arts. And I did my PhD there. And that, that brought together two of my great loves, you know, which is these kind of foundational meaning of life questions that um, Christian theology can answer, as well as um, putting it together with uh, culture and um, the arts and human creativity. And so I, um, you know, continue to do work on the intersection of, of theology and the arts. And, and I, I think that the two areas can be greatly enriched when they speak to one another. Um, I think the, the arts can help 
to kind of enrich and um, help us to understand uh, aspects of who God is, what it means to be human in God's world. And, and likewise, I think that uh, Christian theology provides the most satisfying foundation for human creativity and culture. And and so I've continued to work on that intersection ever since. Uh, my thesis was eventually published as a book on uh, the problem of evil and theological aesthetics, looking at how the arts can help us to um, speak meaningfully about God's goodness, but also about human suffering and, and pain. And, and that if we uh, offer a holistic account of um, uh, theology, where we're talking about kind of all the things that that matter to, to humans. We can we can really see some important resources that help to resolve um, some of these these deep questions that are raised by the problem of evil. Uh, continue to try and keep, as it were, kind of God and the arts in, in the conversation through later work. I've written about Sherlock Holmes and I've written about uh, all sorts of things, video games and um, uh, all sorts of different um, movies, all sorts of different things. And I get to fortunately teach on the intersection of those things at, at HBU through our apologetics program, which has an emphasis on cultural as well as philosophical apologetics. And in the Honors College where I teach, where we talk about all the great books and why they matter and help lead students uh, into the great tradition. Yeah, I have to say it must be really nice to be able to sit down and play a video game and have your wife ask, what are you doing? Research. Research, exactly, yes. Uh, I, I'm I'm not uh, much of a gamer these days. I have a number of kids, and and so uh, we've I've switched over much more to uh, board games and other sorts of games that are more social and a little bit less individualistic. But uh, I am fascinated uh, and a little bit envious um, of people who are enjoying this, you know, great you know, uh, moment we're in where where video games are just able to do so much more than they they could when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think they're they're a fascinating art form. I, you know, art forms that. Uh, enable the audience to participate in the unfolding of the story um, are, you know, kind of a new thing in you know the world of of creativity and and you know certainly new in their incredible potency and accessibility. And so uh, I think we can uh, gain a lot from thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so much of your story seems similar to mine. I mean, I remember going to. Bible college and thinking, I'll probably go into ministry because, you know, you've seen you're going to ministry where you're going to be a preacher. That's just what happens. And got there and found a whole world of things I didn't know about and wound up going with Christian apologetics as my main interest. Indeed. Now, what got me interested in your work also was reading an interesting article you read online. I know some people are going to be stunned to hear this, but a Christian defense of Dungeons and Dragons, I think it was called. Indeed. Now that seems to me, people. It seems you're uh, you're defending Satanism. <laughs> uh, uh, well, of, of course, I would never do such a thing. Uh, so there must be more to the to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is that is a very common, um, if you know, uh, if a decreasing concern that a lot of Christians who. Um, were paying or aware during the the 80s and 90s of um, you know these uh, a lot of the hubbub that surrounded Dungeons and Dragons. It became kind of synonymous with a, you know a dangerous potentially occultic gateway 
uh, into um, uh, satanic activity. And, and, and I, I wrote the article because, um, you know, even though uh, I think the, you know, the, those objections and concerns are unfounded, I still, you know, came across them fairly frequently. And, and you know, it, it, is a, uh, it is a live question, I think, for many, you know, many Christians who have, who have very good hearts and, and I think uh, good mm-hmm. intentions. And so it seemed like some, you know, something still needed to be said. Other people have, you know, offered similar responses elsewhere, and this is nothing particularly original, but um, it, it still happens enough that I think, you know, uh, one isn't wasting one's time to to offer a bit of a defense for what I think can be a very you know uh, wholesome and creative and and wonderfully kind of social communal activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I played several years ago when I was in high school. Also did some of Magic for Gathering as well, and that, that's kind of in fact what actually drove me to apologetics because I was hearing so many criticisms from fellow Christians and worrying about my own state of my own soul. And now objections like that, it's like, yeah, okay, that's cute. They don't phase me anymore because I'm much better grounded. But for people who aren't grounded, that can be something incredibly hurtful to hear. Yes, I think so. And and, and uh, so there are, there are a number of uh, things that go into the suspicion surrounding D and D, and and I think we'll be able to spend a little bit of time unpacking uh, some of those things. One of the one of the big reasons why why Christians have these concerns is because, uh, and this is what I write about in my article, is that um, pretty much from the beginning um, there were you know some suspicions and objections raised to uh, Dungeons and Dragons that that helped to popularize it. Actually, there was a sort of a scare, a panic around a D and D much as there, there was around comic books, you know, back in the forties. Um, and, and it sometimes comes up about video games as well, inciting, you know, mass shootings or something like that. And, before we get into a defense of D and D actually, maybe you should also define what it is for people who don't know, just so we can be sure. Sh- oh, yes, of it. course. Yeah. So if, if, if someone hasn't played, so, um, Dungeons and Dragons is one of many uh, what you call tabletop role-playing games. And so I think most people are familiar with, with tabletop games, games like Monopoly or Sorry or something like that, um, you know, where you gather together with other people and, and you, you play. One of the things that makes uh, tabletop role-playing games a little bit different is they tend to be collaborative as opposed to competitive. Mm-hmm. They tend to be focused on um, having a kind of a shared narrative experience rather than a you know strictly kind of uh, gamist experience. And um, Dungeons and Dragons started as an evolution that grew out of um, war gaming, so an old form of strategy gaming that's been around for a long time actually, where uh, Players we get together to simulate battles, and so you can do this with all sorts of things. The Napoleonic Wars. I've seen people recreate the Battle of the Alamo, you know, with little soldiers, and and you know, think about you know combat strategy and so forth. And D and D's big innovation into this was to um, change the the player from controlling a, a squadron of of soldiers, say. Uh, to controlling a single character, you know, that had a great amount of power. So that's where the role-playing game is. They played a role, um, a single, a single character. And the the way that it 
often functions with role-playing games is that you'll have um, a person who uh, shepherds the narrative experience and helps to adjudicate the rules. This In D&D, this is called the Dungeon Master, a term most people will be familiar with. And uh, But it's I'll, I'll sometimes called Game Master or other things with different sorts of games. And, and that person then you know, as it were, kind of is becomes the rules instead of having just a shared set of rules. Everyone goes by the the dungeon master um, helps to kind of cast the vision, describe the scene, narrate what happens as players make choices, and um, and while everyone else controls a particular character or set of characters, um, the the thing that makes it sort of unique as a as a gameplay experience is that because it's it's done simply through conversation and through people sitting at the table um there's actually a great amount of freedom that's afforded to the to the game that's not given to other sorts of games so you're only bounded really by the imaginations of the people at the table in terms of what you can do there's a big rule set that helps to guide the game master and you know uh figuring out how things should go and um, and the the attraction is is that this narrative freedom then enables for people to have a great amount of creativity and you know make different sorts of choices. If you're playing chess, you know you you're you can't have your knight suddenly just charge across the you know the field and attack the you know attack the king. And although that'd be really like cool if it could. <laughs> It would be it'd be really cool, and so well, that's essentially, if you if you like that idea, you could play a chess form of D and D, I suppose. Um, uh, you know, you're you're bounded by these these sorts of restrictions, and so um, uh, people who I think um, desire more creative control or creative freedom than are given even in video games, you know, which are controlled by a computer algorithm or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you can just you know, do whatever you want. There's a great amount of, you know, conversation and you can get into, you know, imagining how a character might react. And so it, you know, it's a bit like getting to fully inhabit a, a novel or a, you know, a short story. And, and, and what often happens at the table is people, even people who are not terribly creative, don't see themselves as artists, um, or writers, um, uh, you know, they discover that they have a, a lot of, you know, creative ability that, that was perhaps untapped, and they get to um, exercise this and, and bring it to the table. So, it's a nice it's a nice activity for anyone who uh, who enjoys creating things with other people and um, and having a more uh, narrative kind of gameplay experience. Very social. I think that's one of the you know great attractions that you have to play with other people. You can't just play on your phone or on your uh, console by yourself. You have to gather together with, with other people, ideally friends, and um, uh, you know have this narrative experience together. Well, technically, you probably could play by yourself today if you found like, computer games of it. So you could do that. But I, I get what you're saying. And I actually did play some computer games. Right? So yeah, I was playing it by myself at sometimes. Uh, some people might if I want an illustration, I say might be able to think of, say, Stranger Things, mm. for example, where the game has been highlighted on there. Yeah, so that's that's one of the reasons why I think it, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is enjoying a bit of a renaissance. Is that a lot of people saw it again uh, through Stranger Things, or perhaps for the first time, the boys gathered together as young young boys often uh, did in the in the eighties, and you know were playing the. The game. It's a wonderful activity for you know for people with a, a lot of free time. They can kind of sit down together and uh, play. Especially if you don't have a lot on your calendar, it's very easy to get a group together. There's 
video streaming, YouTube, and Twitch have also enabled more people to see Dungeons and Dragons than ever before. In the past, unless you knew someone that played, is kind of this unknown thing. Perhaps may have contributed to the suspicion against it. Didn't people didn't really understand what it was, and um, and so now you know it's very easy to listen to actual play podcasts or watch Twitch streams or um, see it in other forms of media and kind of get a sense of what it is. You might go, oh, that looks really that looks really fun and not not nearly so sinister as I had been told. Okay, so yeah, we have been told it's sinister. Where does this R start? Because the game came out in the seventies, but the hysteria I don't think started until the eighties, right? Yes. Yeah. The um yeah, so it's uh the game the game uh came out in the in the seventies and it, it became popular in the very niche world of of uh tabletop gaming at that time. It's still a relatively speaking a niche endeavor. And probably the first, you know, famous or infamous case uh, that sparked a bit of a scare was the case of, of a young man named James Dallas Egbert the third, who was at Michigan State University and who um, uh, went missing um, and a private investigator was hired to track him down. And the private investigator noticed that he had some D&D books in his room. And he, he came up with this theory, which is not based on fact or anything like that. It was, it was a wild speculation, very creative speculation, but a wild speculation that James Dallas Egbert had uh, gone down into the steam tunnels underneath Michigan State University to play real D&D. And, um, and none of this, of, of course, happened to be true. Uh, the young man who was um, kind of a Doogie Hauser type, he'd gone up to university early at the age of 15, um, was socially isolated. He was using drugs. He had a number of other issues. He had um, uh, left and gone off to a family cabin down in Louisiana um, to commit suicide, actually. Um, very Fortunately, at, at that time, did not succeed in his attempt, but it was a good while before he was eventually located. Um, and during that time, his story had become national news, uh, along with the story that he had, you know, seemingly lost touch with reality because of his playing of of D and D. And and so, uh, you know, nothing nothing beats a good story. And so the story stuck in people's minds. There was a, a writer. Um, a uh, man named Jaffe who wrote a, a novel called Mazes and Monsters sort of based on the idea of someone losing touch with reality as a result of playing uh, board games. And this was actually um, turned into a, a TV movie starring a young Tom Hanks, where Hanks plays uh, the unfortunate kind of fictionalized version of the young man who uh, psychologically unhealthy and begins to blur the line between fantasy and reality. So um, it it became national news as a very kind of catchy story. Um, and, and it actually helped to spark uh, a big rise in D and D's popularity. Uh, uh, ironically, uh, people thought, Oh my goodness, what is this game? That's so engrossing that people lose touch with reality. What is this? And so it, it's, it's reputation rose kind of with, you know, with this, uh, the scary story. And so it, you know, popularity and it's, it's bad reputation grew together as it were. And that's something that the, it's never really been able to uh, shake off entirely, um, you know, for these, for these understandable reasons and that, you know, D and D is a, a game that will, you know, cause you to, to lose your mind. And they've done studies, uh, on whether this is actually an effect. There's a lot of studies done about role-playing games uh, kind of after this 
um, this great concern. And, and one of the curious findings of uh, one study that I read showed that, that actually people who do tabletop role-playing games like this seem to have a better sense of the difference between fantasy and reality, as it were. They're better at sort of switching modes between mm-hmm. perceiving things fictively and perce- you know, understanding what's, what's real. So the, the opposite uh, seems to be the case, that um, D&D um, uh, helps you to better distinguish between the real and the unreal. Um, in any case, that was, uh, that was one of the early stories from you know, late 70s, early 80s. It was a um, kind of popular uh, popular idea about the game. <clears throat> and then not, not too long after that, so in the early 80s, there's another case, again, of a young man, um, a troubled young man named uh, Irving Pulling, who uh, did actually, unfortunately, kill himself. And his, his mother found some D&D manuals. And, and early you know, D&D, again, if you came across the book and you didn't know what it was, it's you know, it can be very difficult to understand the, you know, what this is all about. It's all this kind of fantasy stuff, and um, some of the early, you know, art in it looked kind of weird and goofy. And and his his mother, who I'm sure was well-meaning, uh, came to the conclusion without evidence uh, that um, that the game's magical elements led to satanic activity. Now, this is all um, uh, based on her uh, just hypothesis in her imagining, not any uh, evidence mm-hmm. of the case, but she founded a group called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, and she wrote a book called The Devil's Web, and um, and began to warn people that D&D would lead to uh, satanic activity, because it has you know elements of, of magic and fantasy, like a lot of other you know fantasy stories do, but it, again, it's this kind of strange, unknown thing. Uh, and so it kind of clashed with a, a, a whole um, wave of concern about satanic activity that was very prevalent in the 80s and 90s, the satanic panic, it's often called. And there are a number mm-hmm. of very high-profile cases not involving role-playing games um, where people suspected satanic activity. Um, the, there's a, one involving a, a daycare that dragged on for years. And um, uh, these, again, these are not Born out, and actually, some good research has been done, sort of showing how a lot of this, um, this fears about satanic ritual abuse and so forth were were unfounded. Not that Christians should be unconcerned about, you know, occult activity. This is obviously forbidden. Um, you know, we should warn people against this. Um, it's, but the, the the issue is, is that it's there's actually no link between um, uh, involvement in D and D and. Uh, satanic activity. Uh, probably the worst thing that happens to most people playing D anD D is they just get excited and want to play more. But you can only play so much because you have to have friends with you. You can't just play hours and hours on your own again, like you could with Red Dead Redemption or um, Fallout Three or some such thing as that. Um, there are a couple other places people got this. Jack Chick wrote a very popular Chick track called um, Dark Dungeons, which brings the to the twin themes of disconnection from reality and satanic activity together. Um, and, you know, that was widely read. I think that was probably my first exposure to this, you know, as concern as, you know, seeing a um, whole shelf of chick tracks. And, um, and so, you know, again, this, the game is so niche. So few people knew what it was. Their first exposure to it tended to be from these, 
these warnings and concerns. And so, again, because it's so hard to even see what the thing is or to access it, I think just the the suspicion prevailed um, for a, a very long time. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, there's no evidence that Dungeons and Dragons leads to detachment from reality or to uh, satanic activity in any um, particular way. Um, and so, um, in my my piece, I you know try and look more directly at the well, the game itself. I mean, is is there something wrong with the the game itself? Much in the same way you might worry about um, your child playing Grand Theft Auto, where they shoot police officers and steal cars and so forth. Um, perhaps there's something malign about the um, the game. And and here uh, we find that you know there are some you know. There are magical elements. Um, it's a sort of fully fleshed out open fantasy world where there are angels and demons and you know zombies and there are uh, options for players uh, that you where you can play a kind of a dark wizard you know who can you know create zombies and um, you know the sort of things like that. So there there's certainly a possibility within the game that people could play it in a, you know in a way that. Um, you know, is really kind of maligned. Again, it's just a group of people gathered together creating a story, so you can play it all sorts of different ways. But um, there's nothing in, intrinsic in the game that requires anyone to play this way, or even that, you know, uh, demands that people play this way. Most of the stories and modules that are put out are basically within the high fantasy tradition. Group mm-hmm. of adventurers gathering together to rid the world of some terrible evil. Not terribly dissimilar to a lot of the, you know, delightful fantasy stories that we commend and enjoy, stories like The Lord of the Rings. Right. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solar Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered Nick is and all that he does. It's a desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years. And I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Right. Um, if you, uh, maybe a year or so ago, I read a book, uh, doing some research when to look things up, a book on Christianity and Pokemon, another gaming mm. interest of mine. Sadly, there very isn't a good one out there. That's why a friend of mine and I are writing one together. Oh. But uh, I did find a pastor named Phil Arms had written a book called uh, po- something like Pokemon and Harry Potter, a fatal attraction, going after both of them, largely focused on Pokemon. And he talks about a guy named Sean Sellers who got involved in, who says got involved in wicked practices because of D&D. And uh, Sean Sellers himself actually had a statement about it. And I'm going to read this. With the controversy of a role-playing game so prevalent today, many well-meaning people have sought to use my past as a reference for rebuking role-playing. While it is true that D&D contributed to my interest and knowledge of occultism, I must be fair and explain to what extent D&D contributed. When I was playing D&D, I was not a Satanist. In fact, we were probably punching Satanists I met right in my mouth. I was interested in witchcraft and Zen, however. In doing some research of a library for a D&D adventure I was leading, I happened upon other books that led to my study of occultism. 
After I became a Satanist, I used D&D manuals for magical symbols and character references for my initial studies. I also used my experience as a dungeon master to introduce people to satanic behavior concepts and recruitment via card. I do have objections to some of the material TSR releases or role-playing games. I think the excessive use of paganism and occultism is unnecessary and can lead to idealistic problems among some players. However, to be fair to TSR and the Spear of Honesty, I must concede that D&D contributed to my involvement in Satanism like an interest in electronics can contribute to building a bomb. Like the decision to build a bomb, I had already made decisions of destructive nature before I incorporated D&D material into my coven projects, and it was Satanism, not D&D, that had a decisive role in my crimes. Personally, for reasons I published myself, I don't think kids need to be playing D&D, but using my past as a common example of the effects of a game is either irrational or fanatical. Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, well, that that strikes. I mean, that strikes me as being a, a fairly even-handed, you know, approach to things. The analogy of being interested in electronics leading you to um, wanting to make a bomb, or perhaps somebody who joins the military and then you know uses that that training towards some bad ends later on to become an assassin or some such thing as that. Mm-hmm. Lots of um, uh, you know things that aren't. Uh, ordered or aimed toward malign purposes can be used in that way. Um, much, I, I will say that much like um, Harry Potter or um, Pokemon or Star Wars, uh, you know, uh, one wants to, you know, handle um, almost any contemporary cultural product with a certain amount of discernment. You know, you could look at, say, the kind of perhaps animistic um, flavor of Pokemon or the, um, you know, Taoist kind of new age spirituality that undergirds Star Wars um, and be concerned about these things. And so I, I think that's where, you know, kind of discernment and caution is always, is always appropriate. This is part of, this is part of comes with, with uh, Christian maturity. Cause the question is really whether Christian should play D and D Christian maturity is to, to learn to, kind of handle things with mm-hmm. discernment and, and moderation. One of the, one of the benefits of course of, of Dungeons and Dragons uh, is that unlike say Harry Potter or Star Wars or Pokemon, um, it's, there's really no requirement that one play in any particular sort of, sort of way The spells and D and D that a wizard might cast um, aren't uh, based on, you know, arcane rituals or teach you anything, uh, particularly about, um, how the, the occult works. Um, but you know, a group could get together and play and say, you know, really kind of horrible ways or use it for all sorts of purposes. So, so you, you might, you think about it, you might want to think about it a bit more like a platform than, um, than even like a, a story or a narrative because there's a, you know, a great amount of flexibility. So, uh, when people ask me, you know, well, should my kid be, you know, playing D and D? The you know, first question I ask is, well, do you do you trust their friends? <laughs> um, do you think that your group, their group of friends that they're together with, are going to lead them well or lead them astray? And if you're concerned that the friends will lead them astray, then you've got a bigger problem than D and D. You've got untrustworthy people surrounding your your kid, and so I think that a uh, um, you know, again, kind of discerning, even moderately discerning and moderately wise, you know, people can, can play in ways that are, that are ordered toward, you know, the good and, uh, the wholesome and, um, the, the published material from, which is the coast for the most part is, you know, tells stories of, of heroic adventure, um, 
and uh, doesn't you know encourage actively encourage players to um, to play D anD D. There 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 is one or two exceptions. So so one you know things people should be aware of. Um, one of the character options within D anD D is that you can play a warlock, and it sounds a little bit sinister. You know, warlocks are powered by some higher level patron, and there's one of the warlock options is that you have some kind of fiend as your um, as your patron who gives you power. This sounds quite sinister, um, and uh, and the beauty of of D anD D is that it um, the dungeon master has you know basically kind of control over what goes in the world it's very easy just to say oh you know everybody at my table needs to play a hero we're here to be heroes and so you have to be good aligned and have kind of good intentions um and it's as simple as that to iron out any you know potentially wicked um options uh so in this in this regard D can be a bit like playing games like open world games like skyrim uh, where you can play in all sorts of different ways um, you can play in good ways and bad ways and so a lot of this has to do with just handling the thing um, uh, with with good intentions and creatively aiming toward the good yeah yeah but dr town i heard you reference several times Magic, and you know the Bible has a lot to say about those who practice magic arts. So obviously, what you're saying just can't be accepted, since you're encouraging <laughs> people to participate in magic, aren't you? Uh, uh, well, I'm I'm not because um, there's a uh, a fictive reality that I'm I'm talking about uh, where you are. I'm not engaging in in magic. I'm um, uh, fictively uh, playing a game where there are. Uh, magical elements, and so, uh, so obviously, um, uh, sorcery and in, you know engaging in um, occultism is is forbidden. And I, let me be clear on this: you know, people should not uh, should not engage in um, uh, sorcery, occultism, attempt to cast spells, and so forth. Um, uh, but um, I, I think that any anyone now who you know is willing to accept. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, um, or Harry Potter, or Star Wars, as you know, enjoyable and largely wholesome um, forms of, of fictive entertainment, can easily understand the difference between um, uh, imaginative uh, magic and engaging and dabbling in real magic. Uh, so, um, so I, I don't have that uh, that problem at all. The D and D doesn't require you to, you know perform a ritual, an actual ritual, in order to cast spells. Um, there's a clear mechanical effect uh, in, you know, involved. If I cast Fireball, and I know exactly what this does. I roll some dice, it does some damage. Um, and this is, you know, not dissimilar from playing any sort of game where um, we're assuming that, uh, you know, magic is possible. So it's a, it's a totally different ball of wax. But if people want to press on this, then I, I heartily encourage them to... You know, then be consistent and and rid themselves of any um, any forms of entertainment where uh, you know you where magical possibilities are allowed. So, what do you think the Bible is condemning then when it condemns magic arts? Uh, yeah, well, so you know, the I think the obviously you know engaging in um, you know pacts with um, you know spiritual 
forces, um, you know, calling on powers besides God, um, attempting to manipulate reality through, um, uh, you know, through some sort of magical means. These uh, divination, so consulting with, you know, fortune tellers or um, diviners, these are, these are things that you know, we, we do know that people engage in, obviously there's, you know, cult activity, but also people go to have their palms read or see, see fortune tellers. And, and these are the things that are, um, uh, clearly ruled out for a Christian who's, um, who's following scripture. There seem to be some kind of edge cases. So for instance, the, you know, casting lots, um, is, a uh, um, uh, wouldn't be, uh, doesn't seem to be forbidden in the same way. Um, uh, the roll of the dice comes from the Lord, and and so the, uh, this seems to have been done at various times in in Scripture. But you know, I, I think we're all we should all be pretty clear that you know, um, engaging in in real world occultic activity clearly mm-hmm. forbidden. Yeah. Now, there's also a danger that you talk about with people getting addicted to things. And to an extent, this can happen, but we have to be very careful, I think, what is meant by addiction. Actually, because, I mean, I remember when, say, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild came out, so me and my friends were getting hardly into it. Unfortunately, I didn't have a game at the time, so I wasn't able to join them, but now I do have it. Hallelujah. (laughs) But a lot of them were getting involved in the game. And I don't think this can count as addiction necessarily, because, you know, when something new comes out, People do want to spend some time with it, and that's perfectly understandable. And, but some people will look and say, you know, all this time you could be doing so many better things with your time, couldn't you? I mean, couldn't we be spending our time in better ways and playing games? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's a good that's a good question and a very relevant one. It's something that does come up sometimes with the indie people. Oh, you know, you lose yourself in this, and um, and that. Some of that, again, comes back to this knee-jerk suspicion that people have of activities that they don't really know about or care about, mm. you know. Um, I they, often, they, they don't usually seem to say the same thing about professional sports, do they? Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, watching hours and hours of March Madness is, you know, a healthy, you know, um, normal American activity. Um, but, you mm. know, uh, pl- you know, getting together once a week to play D&D for four hours somehow um, – Mm. strange and unusual and weird and uh you know I, I of course i i do think people should be wary of what they're doing with their time attention and money um and this is an important thing for you know for all christians to be mindful of um the uh there are a lot of things everything is clamoring for our attention you know we have incredible access to all sorts of um time wasting uh time wasting things the little silly games on your phone um you have to be wary of that or big immersive computer games or um uh social media or or you know tv or any such thing uh, have to be enjoyed with with moderation and keep putting first things first um the, the bigger question of course is you know a question of what's the value of of play in general is there any place for leisure um in the in the life of a christian and that's that's one that uh, I think is is pretty easy to answer as as well, which is that um, a healthy understanding of uh, the commands of God, uh, you know, tell us that that not only are we um, uh, allowed 
to, as it were, rest and enjoy good things in life, to feast. Um, we're commanded to feast as well as fast. We, we're given um, a Sabbath day on which we should not work. Um, and the um, one of the things that this says, as it were, is that, you know, God's provision is enough. God is sovereign and, and God um, uh, is does not need us to accomplish all of his, his plans and purposes. And so, so restful leisure, um, uh, is, is not only something that a a Christian is allowed to engage in, but is, is commanded to engage in. And, um, and this is not a insignificant thing. Uh, uh, Joseph Pieper wrote a fine little book called leisure, the basis of culture. One of the things that he points out is that, you know, a lot of the fine, beautiful, you know, works of art and, you know, great achievements of, of human civilization, um, come out of uh, a deeply Christian understanding that, you know, there are kind of sacred times and places um, when, you know, we should refrain from from work, from striving to be more productive, and that we, we should, in fact, rest and create and enjoy beautiful things. Uh, and so, so not only is the Christian allowed to do this, but in some ways I think the Christian is one of the um, few people who have a kind of a healthy understanding of the balance between um, – uh, work and rest between fasting and feasting. The Hebrew day starts at sunset, right? Um, we work from rest. We don't um, uh, simply rest when we collapse from too much work. And so, so uh, rest and enjoyment is um, is an important part of the the Christian understanding of all of reality and God's relation to it. Yeah, something I, my wife and I still laugh about sometimes is. When Pokemon Go was really at its height, there was a channel we were listening to this guy on YouTube who kept saying about matters over and over. He said, well, you know, you can go out and play this game, but keep in mind, while you're playing this game, you could have been doing evangelism. And mm-hmm. we we took that to its logical ends. That, well, honey, I, I know you want me to go and have dinner with you right now, but I realize I could be doing evangelism instead. So, I'm um, so I'm going to have to pass. Yeah, I could go and play for kids, but really, I could be doing evangelism instead. In- uh, yes, it's, it's a very, there's a very utilitarian mindset. Though. So, utilitarian ethics, you know, views the you know, the moral worth of any action, you know, based on its outcome. And so, you know, you, if with this in mind, you could think, oh, well, golly, I mean, basically, you know, I really should at every moment be trying to kind of make something good, you know, come out of my actions. And there's no clear end to, you know, uh, to this. Um, and so, uh, you know, one can kind of fall into a mindset where you, you think, um, that as it were, kind of everything rests upon, you and a, a more healthy understanding of obligations on a Christian, you know, come out of a sense of, you know, we have certain duties, um, this, um, which we have to balance, uh, against one another. And so we, we have a duty to proclaim to others the, the good news. We also have duties to, you know, our families, uh, to our children. Um, we have again, a duty to rest, um, as well as a duty to work. And, and so, you know, we want to think about, you know, the, all the things that we are commanded, uh, to do. And, and, uh, I think that, um, you know, simply looking at kind of things in a utilitarian mindset does pretty quickly, uh, lead to 
to ruin. Um, and uh, there's it, it's an unsustainable way to uh, to approach life. Not to say that there aren't um, some people for whose kind of great calling is to to make incredible sacrifices and to devote, as it were, their entire lives to um, uh, certain forms of service. You know, Paul talks about you know the benefits of being unmarried and you know being able to you know, be free from some of those obligations. And I don't want to disparage that, but, um, but we, you know, we also need to, part of my duty to my wife, you know, involves doing things like taking her out on a date, right. Um, uh, to, uh, to make sure that our relationship is healthy. My obligations to my children go beyond just properly kind of training them, discipling them also involve, you know, enjoying life with them. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Finn, is a purpose, whether you're married or not, what is the purpose of play? I mean, let's suppose I've done all the stuff I need to do in the morning. I go to start my day. I've done some reading, and I say, you know what? I'm just going to pick up a switch and play a game. What is the purpose of that? Is there any, any real good I'm getting by doing that, or am I just wasting my time? Uh, well, I, I think largely the purpose of, of play is... Uh, for enjoyment, mm-hmm. um, so Bernard Suits is a philosopher. Was a philosopher. He's recently died. Um, he was a Canadian philosopher, and he wrote a book called *The Grasshopper: and mm-hmm. Games, Life, and Utopia*. And in that, he argues that you know games are uh, voluntary attempts to overcome unnecessary obstacles. So, games, for instance, obviously not the entirety of play, but they're this on matter at hand that we were discussing, you know, are, are voluntary. Uh, there are things that we do, we don't have to do, but we choose to do. Um, and that we, you know, we challenge ourselves with some unnecessary obstacle. Can I get all of the Tetris blocks to line up in a certain way so oh, that they yes. all disappear? Um, or, you know, can I defeat the, the terrible dragon that's menacing the, the small village uh, with my role-playing friends? Or can I, uh, you know, shoot this spherical ball through the hoop? Can um, I catch whatever. them all? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, can they catch them all? Um, and and then evolve them into more powerful forms. So you have um, these, they're, they're voluntary attempts. They're, they're things that are not strictly necessary. Um, and so the, the purpose is to, the purpose is to have fun. Um, and I think that's, that's worth keeping in mind. Uh, there are a lot of side benefits that come with games, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you train certain abilities, uh, you know, you can train yourself to become a better marksman or something through, you know, shooting games, or you could, uh, train yourself to, um, you know, uh, have more verbal dexterity or strategic, you know, skill through, you know, Scrabble or, um, uh, chess or some such thing. I understand there are some people who are very good at World of Warcraft and use those skills and went on to become CEOs of companies. Oh, I, I could, I could certainly imagine so. Um, you know, the, the there's an old saying: the the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. Eton's a swell boys' school in England, where the, all the kind of best um, families sent their sons, and they play all these, you know, games, and you know, they're playing out there playing. Uh, rugby or whatever, and they're learning strategic ability—the ability to to lead and to work as a group and to struggle through difficulty in order to win. Yep. Um, and these all these abilities then you know help the British to win against Napoleon. And so there 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 are many 
benefits, and, and one of the big ones, of course, being that games are fun, mm-hmm. um, and so people want to engage in them, um, and they kind of come with their own intrinsic rewards, but then they can have sometimes these other extrinsic benefits as well. For um, I think for a lot of modern people who have very busy schedules, having something like a game night um, is a really nice way to kind of structure some time together with other people to enjoy each other's company and overcome some of the isolation that you know can creep into the modern experience. I remember years ago when I was in Bible college, I was getting ready to do my senior sermon, and I decided to do a sermon on the topic of wonder, and someone pointed out to me this article in Moody Magazine, and it was the cover story, and it's such a sad cover story title when you hear it, but it was asked, is it right to enjoy my life? Oh, yeah, very, yeah, that is very concerning. Um, uh, yeah, not, not, a, um, uh, not a positive picture of, um, for others of what it means to be a Christian, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, I, I'm profoundly influenced, of course, by um, uh, G.K. Chesterton, you know, as well as C.S. Lewis and other, you might call Christian humanists, you know, who would, who would say that, oh, well, you know, not only is, uh, you know, is it possible for a Christian to enjoy their life, but it's, you know, Christianity actually offers the, the most fulfilling and most uh, enjoyable way to live. There are kinds of happiness that are only, you know, possible for, for people who have mm-hmm. access to divine grace and purpose and, and ultimate hope. Um, and, and so it seems like we've kind of got things the wrong way, wrong way around. It seems like Jesus uh, enjoyed uh, his life. He suffered greatly, mm-hmm. though he suffered for the joy set before him. And so the deepest truth um, uh, is, is, in fact, joy. Chesterton says at the very end of his book, Orthodoxy, oh, yes. um, that, uh, you know, he says that, um, uh, that, that sort of joy, as it were, is the kind of the gigantic secret at the heart of Christianity. So the small publicity of the pagan, you know, kind of superficial enjoyment, but it's the sort of titanic secret at the heart of, heart of the Christian faith. And, and, and so I think that's, that's worth keeping in mind um, uh, that, that the, the way to, to deepest enjoyment is, in fact, to take up the cross. You know, um, we will su- suffering is unavoidable, um, and in many senses, our short-term suffering will be increased, uh, often for the gospel. Um, but that is not, in fact, in uh, conflict with um, deep enjoyment, nor is it in conflict with many smaller forms of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if our enjoyment doesn't matter at all, then may I ask, what is the purpose of heaven? Exactly, then. Do people think, and well, sadly, I have to say, when I was in youth group growing up, heaven actually seemed like it would be a pretty boring place. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that, that is sometimes something people are concerned about. There's this boredom objection that people have to, to heaven. Oh, well, you know, um, wouldn't it seem boring? I had a friend who, you know, wondered, well, I, will I enjoy heaven? I'm not that crazy about the color yellow, right? Um, and uh, and so the, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, first question is, what's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? We're going to enjoy um, uh, God. This happiness is our ultimate goal and purpose. The, the Blessed Trinity is happy um, in its eternal life, needing nothing else. And, uh, you know, our end is to 
ultimately is to enjoy that as well. And so there's a, um, I, I wrote an essay uh, a little while ago for a book called Two Dozen or So Theistic Arguments. Two Dozen or So Arguments for God. Got it right here. Based on, yeah, it's based on a, um, uh, a, a paper that Alvin Plenty gave many years ago um, where he sketched out a bunch of different arguments. One of them is this argument from play. Um, and he just kind of points toward this possibility. And so I, I did a little bit of work on that. And I, you know, suggested that, oh, so, you know, in, in many senses, you know, it, in play, in this kind of just intrinsic enjoyment in the thing for no other material purpose than that enjoyment, you know, we have a kind of a prefiguring almost of the enjoyment we get from um, the divine life. And um, uh, however, the, the problem with lower forms of games is you always kind of get you can get bored with them, you know, it's fun to level up and you get better and better and so forth. But can we really enjoy that forever? It doesn't seem like games, the kind of thing that we could ultimately enjoy. Bernard Suits seems to think that perhaps this is the case, you know, we could just in utopia, we could just play more and more games and tougher and tougher games and just kind of get better and better forever. But, um, it seems like the only thing that can ultimately sustain that kind of enjoyment is, is a perfect being. And so on some accounts of, uh, heavenly life, we continually grow more and more into the likeness of God. There's this idea called divinization or theosis, um, perhaps just glorification is another word for it, where we continually grow in our capacities. We come to enjoy God more and more. And so you're kind of continually leveling up and leveling up, like like a, a Pokemon, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, uh, you grow into higher and higher forms. You can see more and enjoy more of God all along the way. And this can provide a satisfying objection to the boredom problem that people point out. Yeah. I, I'm wondering what you think also when, when it comes to something like John Piper and his idea of Christian hedonism. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, Piper's point uh, is largely in as such as I understand it is, is in agreement with my own that, you know, God is most, um, uh, we are most satisfied in God when he's most glorified in us. I forget the exact phrasing, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps you recall. Um, but we, uh, you know, that there's no, there's ultimately no, um, opposition between loving and glorifying God and our own happiness. These two things are, are bound up together. Mm -hmm. The only possibility for, long-term deep human happiness is in loving and glorifying and enjoying God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that I think about with this is that it's along the lines of what Chesterton once said that God in making things didn't have to make them the way he made them. He made, he made us that we have to eat, but he didn't have to make it so that it would be something we'd enjoy doing he made a world, and he didn't have to make it with colors, but lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. And he made it that we're creatures that have to reproduce. He didn't have to make it such a fun time for us to do it. Indeed, yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like there's more beauty, there's more enjoyment there, um, than there strictly needs to be um, uh, on a theistic account, or um, certainly on a naturalistic mm-hmm. account. It's very hard to make sense of uh, why our capacities for love and enjoyment and uh, artistic appreciation are necessary for our survival. Um, and and so, uh, you know, it, it, there, it seems like there's more beauty than is necessary, um, more uh, satisfaction and, and pleasures than are 
are necessary. So uh, Lewis says this in Screwtape, you know, Screwtape say, you know, deep down, God is a hedonist at heart, right? Mm -hmm. He says all the sacrifices, these are just the, you know, the superficial things, you know, underneath it all is, is our great pleasures and joys. And, um, and so, uh, oh yes. And I recall the Piper, God is most, uh, glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There we go. So those Piper people don't yell at me for forgetting that, mm. um, that quote. Yes, there's, there's deep, there's no contradiction ultimately between uh, Christian worship and human happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really think in some ways all we do ultimately is for play, that we are meant to enjoy the world that we live in. And if we don't really enjoy it, we're doing a disservice. I mean, when we look at a Christian life, it should be something that people would want to have, and no one really wants to have a boring life. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that I think that's an important point. Uh, Aristotle says, you know, all philosophy begins in wonder, um, and, and there is a fundamental sense in which if we're not attuned, as it were, to the the beauties of the world, to the great pleasures of the world, to the magnificence of things, you know, then, and we're only perhaps thinking about just strictly, okay, our obligations, what what is true, you know, what is good, what should mm-hmm. we do, um, then we're missing out on why these things are ultimately important. Um, you know, the uh, one of my you know, theological guideposts in my work is Hans Urs von Balthasar. He was a um, Swiss Catholic theologian, very influenced though by Karl Barth, a Protestant theologian. And his a lot of his work begins his big systematics begin by reflecting on beauty. And part of his point is that well, you know, beauty is really necessary for explaining kind of why it is that we should even desire the good. If the good isn't beautiful, then why would we want it? Um, and instead of its opposite, what if the, tr- if the true is not also beautiful, then why should we value the truth? We have a deep assumption buried in just our, our culture that you know, truth is valuable. But if we lose a sense of why it's valuable and good for us, then you know, we begin to um, – uh, we also then lose our understanding of why – truth matters. Uh, if you begin to pick apart the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful, then very quickly everything falls apart. Uh, the, the, the good in the short term may be painful and difficult for us. Mm-hmm. Fundamental teaching of um, Christian theology is that you know, God's commands are, are in place for our good, right? for our flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're for our benefit. Um, though, you know, any aspects of study of reality, mathematics or physics or theology or philosophy or any such thing can be difficult at first, can seem painful, um, but the ultimate end is so that we can enjoy the truth, we can reflect on it and wonder about it and and delight in it. And so, um, fundamental to, I think, all human um, goals, you know, is, is this sense that you know, God has created a beautiful and good world um, that should evoke wonder and delight, um, and which naturally spurs us on. Um, our, as it were, kind of our, our head, our hearts, and our appetites ultimately can be brought in line because the true, the good, and the beautiful are one. Mm-hmm.
Well, I like to remind everyone this point, we're going to try and split ahead with the next session, just get a few minutes of this one better. You're seeing the Deeper Wars podcast. We got Dr. Phil Town here talking about beauty and play today. We spent a lot of time talking about play. We're going to be getting into beauty here. But if you're here next week, we're going to have another favorite guest of ours returning to the show. Craig Keener is going to be here. Again, he's got a new book out now called Christobiography, looking at the... uh, Looking at the Gospels and talking about what does it, are they biographies and if they are, what does that mean? So if you care about that kind of question, then come back here next week. And if you don't care about that question, come back here next week anyway because maybe you should care about it. <laughs> so now let's uh, get back to Dr. Talon talking about the uh, importance of play first. But now let's move to beauty. And first off, let's just ask a question that's both simple and hard. What is beauty? Mm. Um, well, I think uh, beauty uh, is that which it was. Uh, I, I view it as an aesthetic property, which is to say that it's about beauty is something that we perceive, um, and beauty is uh, having the you know that which is aesthetically good, right? Mm. Um, so it's a something that is perceived and is good uh, in its mm. uh, perceivability, and so. Um, Many things. I think probably everything created possesses some degree of beauty, um, which is that there's a, a fundamental aesthetic goodness to uh, to creation. So trees, skies, sun, stars, people, animals um, may possess beauty in different ways and in different amounts, but you know all possess this kind of goodness that we can perceive when we look upon them. And this doesn't have to be um, all in exactly the same way. So certain things are aesthetically good by being, you know, very complex or intense, uh, perhaps. So certain kinds of music, you know, um, you know, listening to kind of a drum circle or to, you know, hard rock music, you know, you're really attending to its kind of intensity, its driving force, maybe the complicated way that, you know, a guitar lick is, um, is going or something like that. Um, that can be a form of, of beauty. And then things can also be beautiful by being harmonious, gentle, um, uh, you know, having properties of being kind of soft, um, or, you know, something could be beautiful by being just simply radiant, you know, a lovely light or a, a beautifully um, painted wall could have a certain measure of beauty. And so beauty is aesthetic goodness, um, as, I, as I understand it. You know, there are a lot of people out there who think that beauty, though, is not anything objective. It's relative, because I mean, we all have so many different ideas of what is and what isn't beautiful. I mean, if you and I went to, say, an ice cream parlor together, like if we were doing this live and we went together to an ice cream parlor for show, you and I might have some very different taste on what kind of ice cream we should get, because which one's the best one out there? I mean, we, we'd want to get that, but we could have some very different opinions. Anything with peanut butter, by the way, is the right answer. Uh, yeah, so, you know, and, and then, of course, yeah, people argue about, you know, they have different taste in um, female beauty, mm-hmm. or they might have different taste in movies or music. And, and so the, there's a very old saying, you know, de gustibus non disputandum, there's no accounting for taste, uh, sort of suggesting that uh, people, you know, like all sorts of different things, and they're really irreconcilable. Um, and this has 
or more recently, beauty being in the eye of the beholder. And so it's a very common notion when you talk to people that when they attempt to kind of grapple with what beauty is, they will tend to say something that's, you know, they're trying to, they say that, yeah, yeah, beauty is basically just, it's subjective, it's really just individual response to things and that you can't you can't reconcile this or really uh, debate about it in the way you can with other things say ethics or um you know the truth of of certain matters and um sometimes they mean something they're trying to say something nice which is to say oh well it's good you like that i like this um there's a a, a more unfortunate and uh, incorrect way to construe this though which is to say that actually no there's really you know, no rational kind of discourse can take place around matters of, of beauty. And I think that's a, a mistake. Um, subjectivism um, regarding beauty leads, if you follow it faithfully, it leads to some serious problems. You can't have any, then you can't have any sort of aesthetic discourse if you're a radical subjectivist because you can't use any aesthetic terms and have them, them have a shared meaning. So if... Um, for instance, I'm standing in front of a painting, and I say, "Oh, isn't this this painting is um, uh, is is lovely? Um, it's you know, it's not uh, gaudy at all." And and then another person says, "Oh, actually, no, I think it's it's quite gaudy. You know, I don't I don't like it. It's bad." Um, you, the subjectivist might say, "Oh, see, there you go. You have two different you know kind of reactions. There's no reconciling them. Subjectivism is true." I can't but think about the but, abolition of man when you say all that. Exactly. Well, yeah. So some, one calls the um, the waterfall slime, the other calls it pretty. Um, and as Lewis's example, but uh, the problem is uh, so with the painting example is that uh, we're both using this term "gaudy" as if it had some sort of shared meaning. But if if aesthetics is as relative as all that, then then we can't have shared meanings for any kind of aesthetic term. Um, and so, because how could we ever identify something which possesses the property of gaudiness, right? Um, how could we even describe it? Um, so subjectivism thoroughly followed leads to these sorts of incoherences and just it's impossible to have any sort of discourse um, at all about uh, about aesthetic mm-hmm. values. And and so in, in my essay, in the, in the book, Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, I, I really try and dig into this because it seems to be one of the, the key issues that people have. And I attempt to show that you know, very often when, what people are doing when they're having aesthetic di- disputes is they're not really saying what you like and you think is good is in fact not at all good. Um, very often they're just sort of saying, well, you know, I think this thing is a little bit better. So chocolate ice cream is not my favorite kind of ice cream, but I understand why people like it. I can, you know, discern in it some things that are that are good. I just happen to prefer strawberry, you know, or some such thing as that. Um, and these sorts of disputes in no way lead to a kind of subjectivism. Um, they're, they just show that, you know, we, we do have certain preferences for things. Um, when you look at really kind of big, um, uh, big issues, though, it becomes very clear that there's actually subjective is far overrated. You know, so for instance, evaluating filmmakers or novelists, there tends to be a great critical consensus around who are, you know, the truly important uh, novelists or filmmakers over time. So in the short run, any given year, people might rank the the top movies a little bit differently. But over time, as you know, critical consensus you know accumulates and discussion continues, there's often a great amount of agreement about you know who are the the truly great writers. Um, and so. Uh, 
the ice cream store, you know, um, might mislead us as, as an example. The better example might be something like, well, which, you know, which do you think is the more delicious uh, desserts? Do you think Jolly Ranchers candies are, you know, are overall a better desserts or, you know, really finely made, you know, wonderful, fresh, you know, gourmet ice cream? Um, it seems to me that only a child with very ill-formed taste would prefer Jolly Ranchers candies. Um, and But through cultivating good taste, uh, one can clearly see that, you know, well-made ice cream is better. And so um, just by backing up a little bit, I think we can resolve and uh, dispel some of the allure of subjectivism. Uh, I know Mortimer Adler, when he wrote an essay on this, about how we have all these events that we do that demonstrate that we really do see beauty as a more objective thing. And he pointed to how we have beauty pageants, for example, mm. with mm-hmm. it's um, not not bragging here anyway. My wife's actually won one. No, no, not rubbing that in, everyone. <laughs> Absolutely not. I have no reason to brag that I've married to a beauty queen. But yeah, we, we do have those kinds of things going on. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think... Um uh, you know, another, you know, other examples are, you know, kind of collections in, you know, museums. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, over time critical consensus accumulates. I think most people, you know, if they're really pressed, they could, you know, be able to kind of rank, you know, better or worse things. Part of the issue, of course, is that, you know, um, it's not as if perception of something's beauty is is uh, is always simple and straightforward. Some of it involves the. Um, development of taste. And so much in the same way that our moral sensibilities have to be developed, uh, children, you know, for instance, don't have terribly well-developed moral senses and a lot of people. I mean, or just if if one never tries to kind of learn anything about ethics or to grow as a person, your your, uh, moral sensibilities can actually grow worse. Um, We have, you know, kind of basic moral intuitions, but they have to be refined and we have to grow in order to kind of properly perceive, say, moral values. Or, you know, simply something like, um, you know, though they're maybe certain views on, you know, particle physics, which are true and others which are false. I'm not equipped to evaluate the truth or falsity of these things because I haven't gone through a process of learning, you know, higher level mathematics and uh, understanding physics and how to, how to evaluate such things. And so it, it could be, it's a very anti-democratic thing to say, I suppose, um, that there are just, there are beauties which, you know, people who are not invested in um, certain forms of art or understand them well, just they're not equipped to evaluate um so you know i i think i think we know you know really what um uh what we're talking about and most some aspect of our lives will probably have some more well-developed capacity you know you get to you really get into barbecue and you get to learn what the differences between good barbecue and bad barbecue mm-hmm. in the way that your kids may not fully understand or you know perhaps you're um you know you have a keenly developed you know sense of what um, what makes for a good athlete in some particular area that um, that other people who are outside don't don't comprehend. So we have to develop um, skill in evaluating and understanding certain areas um, of almost anything in life. And you know, artistic appreciation or just aesthetics is is no exce- no exception to that. You know, when when you talk about people who deny objective beauty, I I always have this. I hope that someday I'm going to meet a guy who denies objective beauty in person and his wife's going to be right there with him and I'm just going to be able to say, let me just ask you one question. 
Do you think your wife really is truly beautiful, or is that just an idea in your head? And just see what happens at that point. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, I mean, I think that, well, that, that does come up, you know, so uh, I've, I have had this very, you know, issue, you know, raised is sometimes people like to bring up the matter of you know, objective beauty and say, oh, well, that means that you think that, you know, like your wife might be prettier than my wife, but, you know, I think the opposite. Um, and the, you have to be a little bit calculating in a way when you defend objective beauty to say, well, look, just because I think that, you know, some things can be ranked above others doesn't mean I think that, you know, one person possesses no beauty. And I don't mean to deny that, nor do we have to, the, these little edge cases don't, um, don't cause any particular problems. And so um, the, the essay, you know, digs into, you know, a number of, of frequent objections that, that people raise. Um, and my goal is largely to defend, I think, a common sense uh, view, which is that we, we predicate beauty of things. We say, this is beautiful, you know. So when I say, you know, my, my baby is beautiful, I'm not just saying something about my emotions, you know, I love to look at this baby. Um, I'm actually saying something about the thing itself. Um, this is a, a common sense view. I, I don't think it um, even really needs uh, any um, additional work in order to hold it. But there are objections that, of course, raise to it. And so one wants to kind of protect the, the basic view. And that's what I in, intend to do. And so much in this, I think most people think that there are certain things that are objectively true, certain things that are objectively right or wrong. And so and beauty is, is much like that. Concerns me a bit more, um, you know, I'd say is that within the church, you often find, you know, people who are quite devoted to defending truth or um, ethical, you know, truths or some such thing as that, but then who are subjectivists about beauty. Mm. They've they've bought a lot of modernist assumptions hook, line, and sinker without questioning them, at least regarding aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if using the example of a guy and his wife, which my main thing to get to that is saying beauty isn't relative or else your wife isn't truly beautiful. I mean, that's another example of how beauty means so much to our culture. My wife, for instance, is very interested in learning how to do makeup where I mean, she even has this very noble goal of someday going to hospitals when she gets really good at it and working at working with children who have gone through fires and things of that sort and applying makeup to them so they can at least feel beautiful for a day. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, and uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, I think, obviously the way that we operate in common life, you know, suggests that we do have this understanding that there, there is such a thing as beauty. One of the things that, um, uh, you can do if you want to get ahead in life is, uh, you can, you know, dress nicely and, you know, um, brush your hair and try to make yourself look good because, you know, humans have natural reactions to beauty. Even very small children, babies, um, uh, react to, uh, beautiful faces you know they they seem to respond to you know faces that are you know highly symmetrical or you know possess kind of classical features mm-hmm. of of beauty and and so uh there's this you know deeply ingrained value of, of beauty that we possess as as humans and all of this of course is is not accidental um you know, God possesses the greatest amount of beauty. God's creation is um, invested with beauty. So 
Genesis, you know, we have this uh, language that God uses, which we translate as good, which in a Hebrew sense, you know, I think has a kind of a wider um, connotation. It's not just that these things are good, but that they're kind of good in every sense. They're beautiful as well. Um, Septuagint translation, likewise, you know, carries this connotation. So it's really only in the modern, you know, world where we've broken these things apart. Um, uh, You know, so I think the case, the biblical case for objective beauty is pretty strong. Our common sense view that, you know, beauty is objective is, is pretty strong. And it's really only these kind of modern assumptions, especially since people like Immanuel Kant and others that, that we've been, um, we've been forced to become suspicious of something that I think intuitively we know to be true. Mm-hmm. You know, with that, those statements about beauty and how we, we just, we look at our culture and say, what's the point of beauty? so many times <clears throat> and I, I think we could just ask that why should we seek after beauty at all I mean what does beauty do for us um, well I think uh, much much like a discussion of play you know that that the beautiful is in, intrinsically good and so it needs no further justification for existing or enjoying it's just it's good to uh, look at and properly enjoy beautiful things. Um, now, there there are, like with play, some other additional benefits that I think make it additionally commendable. And so um, uh, there's a, a fine book by Elaine Scarry. She's a philosophy professor at Harvard um, called On Beauty and Being Just. And uh, Iris Murdoch makes kind of a similar point, which is that there is a – Murdoch would say that that the beautiful is what she called decentering, um, which is to say that it it makes us attend to something which is not ourselves, um, and not just think about ourselves. So I think the experience of falling in love with a woman is a bit like this. You know, you um, it's not just that I enjoy the feelings I have when I'm around you, but there is something about you that I'm you know profoundly concerned with. I care about you. I would die for you, um, mm-hmm. and and so we we begin to care about something beyond ourselves. Likewise, if, um, you know, a, a great museum with fine works of art, you know, um, Rembrandt's and Van Gogh's and um, uh, Michelangelo's and Raphael's and that sort of thing were on fire, I think many people would, would run in to attempt to save the works, even if uh, danger to themselves. Like when Notre Dame was on fire. Thing. What's that? Like when Notre Dame was on fire. Yes, well, exactly. I mean, that when you know Notre Dame burned, I mean, this was you know such a, a work of such great beauty and majesty that you know people who had no religious conviction were quite distressed. It was uh, very um, painful to watch the the thing burn, and even if they never planned to go there again, just the thought of this beautiful thing would be destroyed is is quite difficult. And so there is a sense in which appreciation of the beautiful is mirrors or can be akin to or a form of um, kind of self-sacrifice or ethical concern. We care about something else, you know, beyond us. Mm-hmm. Kant calls the beautiful symbol of the good. I'm not entirely sure I understand exactly what he means there, but there, I think there is a sense in which um, uh, truly beautiful things can 
you know, can bring something better out of us. They force us to think about the things themselves instead of just about what those things can do for us. Um, so one always wants to beware then. This is actually kind of a good guide to, you know, can we consume works of art and other things. If, if the art we're consuming is really only about kind of just, what am I getting out of this? Does this kind of scratch itches that I like? If works never challenge us or stretch us or um, transform us, then we're probably not consuming very good works right if everything just says exactly what we were expecting to hear you know that's a pretty low form of entertainment and Mm. great works i think have this kind of soul stretching ability that uh, is 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 of great importance and and which um which is ultimately Mm -hmm. uh reflected in our stretching toward out toward god toward the ultimate beauty um it's a truly learning to appreciate and you know and delight in the beautiful is a transformative process um and it's one that you know all of us who seek after god must go through yeah before i ask my next question since i think you could have a a long answer to it i'm going to go ahead and everyone know you're listening to deeper worlds podcast everything we do here is supported by listeners like you and uh if you want to support us Please, please say you want to support us. We very need it. Uh, go to my website, deeperwatersofprojects.com. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Okay, you click what's there, you get taken to a ministry of Risen Jesus, a ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. You have a right spot. Those are my in-laws. You click, you make your donation, you get in touch with them or me or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also go and buy some ebooks that I have written. I'm about to have come out via book a, um, a book that's a response to Outgrowing God. We actually don't have a title for it yet, but it's a response to Richard Dawkins's latest book, Outgrowing God, that I've written. It's in the editing process right now. I've also written a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. And you can uh, buy books I've co-written, God and Natural Disasters, Defying Inerrancy, Grounding Inerrancy, Christian Answers, Rich Generations Questions, Groundless, and of course, the Minster Bars Project. And if you, uh, if you haven't... Uh, if you haven't done so already, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters Podcast. I'd love to see it. Now, Dr. Town, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, no, but I, um, if, if anyone's you know, uh, interested to check out um, Houston Baptist University, we have a master's mm-hmm. in apologetics. You can go to hbu.edu slash MAA. That'll take you right there. We also mm-hmm. have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed, HBU Apologetics, which you're welcome to, to follow. We have a newsletter you can sign up. Um, uh, for through our website and if you want to get more updates on all the wonderful things that my, my fine and accomplished colleagues are doing you're welcome mm-hmm. to go there and many of those fine and accomplished colleagues have been guests on this show I'm always happy to support Houston Baptist University indeed Excellent. including Michael Kona yeah. yeah now you talked about the way that beauty can kind of motivate us and inspire us and I couldn't help but think about my own time in dating, in preparing for marriage. And I have Asperger's, as does my wife, so getting us to do some things can be extremely difficult. 
But one of my friends who knew me said, you know what really convinced me that you and I were going to get married? It was when I saw a picture of you at your first date together, and you were at the Georgia Aquarium, and she got you reaching out and touching some of the creatures in, in the water. I know you don't like touch like that, and you were doing it. And as soon as I saw her, I said, he's going to marry her. That's it. <laughs> and for my own, well, also, being on the spectrum, my eating habits, the foods I will eat are extremely limited, and I don't have any intention of changing that for the most part. My, fa- my parents worked with friends and therapists and teachers and everyone else to try and get me to change my diet so much. Sorry, not going to happen. Not budging a bit. I have no wish. I have no desire. I was married to Allie for less than a year, and I already had changes making place, and she didn't even have to try because of who she was. And let's face it, I'm a guy. Beauty was a great motivator in that because I realized my wife's beautiful. I want to treasure more of that beauty, and I want to be around to treasure more of it, so I want to be healthy. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's I think that's right. I think that that's one of the great um, one of the one of things about created life is that God has put many things in our path where we are transformation does not exclusively come through difficulty and pain. It's often necessary, um, but uh, often comes through you know great delights. You know, mm-hmm. um, through things like friendship or marriage uh, or having mm-hmm. children um, or other. Uh, enjoyable activities. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, that there's this transition that happens, you know, boy grows up reading uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and then finally buckles down to learning Homeric Greek. And so you, you know, often delights can lead into transformations. These things that, you know, that excite us can, can lead us uh, along, along the way as well as, you know, difficult spurs, which are also important. We often grow through uh, through hardship and pain as well, um, but not exclusively through such things. And and so, um, you know, again, if we, if we only ever see uh, transformation or ethics, you know, or anything as, as wholly about kind of difficulty and sacrifice, then, um, you know, we begin to you begin to not want those things. You think, oh, I just no, actually, I just prefer to stay the way I am. And I, I suppose being a happy person means being a bad person, and that's the choice that I'm left with. Um, but obviously, the opposite is the case. And in fact, I think there are pleasures, um, great pleasures, um, that are unavailable to people who haven't gone through certain kinds of difficult, transformative work. So you, you know, learn to appreciate more c- complex novels or um, films um, or uh, you know pieces <clears throat> of music. Um, it's a you get to access new and different and greater beauties. Just spent um, a week talking about Shakespeare with my students, and Shakespeare is not the easiest writer for modern people to access. But you know, with a little bit of work and, and acclimation, you can encounter these. Uh, scripts of plays written by, you know, one of the greatest literary minds that the world has ever known, you know, where every line seems to have some, you know, kind of richness and charm and vigor and, you know, compression of insight, um, uh, phrased beautifully. And so just there, there are many great things that are unavailable to us without, 
you know, some process of, of growing and transformation. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important thing. To, it's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, again, back to C.S. Lewis talking about, you know, that deep down God is a hedonist at heart, right? Um, God's ultimate goal for us is to enjoy him and to enjoy his creation. Yeah, I was, uh, problem, what I'm getting at, though, is that if, it, if there's anything that's the most beautiful of earthly things that God's made, I'd say it's people themselves. And mm. I've I've told people honestly, I said, look, if I want to be convinced God exists, I just need to look at my wife. And mm. I'm convinced God exists at that point. You might think, as some people might think, I don't see that argument, but to me it's thoroughly convinced because I would think the only way I can explain something that beautiful existing is if God exists. And mm. we all know this to be true to some extent, even if it's being done wrongfully, the reason the pornography industry is so strong is because female beauty is such a huge motivator for yeah. guys. Yeah, the, well, I think that's um, I think that's right. The uh, and so you know I think that is an important thing to keep in mind. So again, back to Hans Urson Balthazar, I mentioned others, and he said, you know, the the most beautiful thing, you know, is the saint, right? The most beautiful thing that can exist on earth is the saint. So a human person living under kind of God's uh, rule and guidance completely, you know, um, and that that is the, the greatest form of beauty that's present. And Christians would say, you know, the, the most beautiful person uh, to ever live was was Jesus Christ himself. There's a, mm-hmm. um, a, a fundamental deep beauty uh, to not, not necessarily to how he looked. Isaiah tells us, you know, perhaps nothing so special about how he looked, but who he was, you know, the his way of being in the world, the, um, his way of life, you know, his his teaching, his his soul, um, the deep thing under uh, deep things underneath it, and so um, yes, I do think that you know, and as a theological point, you know, the human person is in a way the kind of the crown of um, of creation can either be the most beautiful thing or perhaps the ugliest thing um, uh, in in creation, and um, and so. And this is and this is a good thing. This is who we're made for. We're made for uh, community with each other. It's not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. Hey, Deeper Waters fans, Sean McDowell here. I'm a professor, writer, and a speaker. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate and value the work of my friend Nick Peters on his podcast, Deeper Waters. He gets on some of the top guests in their field and asks them some great, practical, timely questions. I hope you enjoy and listen to the work at Deeper Waters and pass it on to a friend. Yeah, I I often think that if Allie and I have kids someday, one of the things I've said is, if we ever have a daughter, I want to name her Eve or some variation <laughs> thereof. Interestingly, if we have a son, she's got the name picked out for the son already. So <laughs> it, we've kind of got things mixed, but I've said, I've wanted to name a daughter Eve because, or some variation there, because I want to get her in picture. Daughter, you are meant to be a representative of God's beauty on this earth. Because woman was the last thing created, and I think woman was meant to be the crown of beauty in God's creation. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm not... Um 
I think there's there's something to that. I'm not certain um, if uh, necessarily about that, but I do think that humans are, um, in in a deep theological sense, certainly the um, intended to be, as it were, the kind of the focus of um, uh, of of human attention and appreciation. And you know, we are made we are made for each other. Um, and it's an important thing to keep in mind, of course, because we live in a time where. Um, there's a growing kind of anti-human sentiment uh, from humans, of course. You know, are humans even really that good a thing? Are we ruining everything? And perhaps it'd be better if we didn't exist. And, and so the, the gospel can certainly preach to that, how uh, beautiful a human person truly is. Um, of course, part of what you're you're pointing to is the uh, this kind of before was the the argument from for God from beauty, which we haven't really discussed yet. Perhaps we'll be talking about that before our, our time concludes. But um, it is a an, an argument that I think is is important and worth you know uh, worth unpacking a bit. Well, let's get into that then. Okay, Be- I mean uh, um, Peter Craven Tosseri in their their book at Twin Handbook Christian Projects have this argument. So the music of Bach exists, therefore God exists. So you either <laughs> see it or you don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, I kind of uh, give them a bit of a hard time in my essay because I, I, I think that while we all understand what they're saying, there's no need to um, uh, go after them too hard. Uh, I think that, that that tendency to just sort of hand wave, as it were, the the uh, argument from beauty is a little bit of a um, a problem within Christian philosophy because often beauty is seen as this kind of I don't know amorphous, um, uh, un- indescribable you know thing. Perhaps something left to artists, not really for philosophers to to delve into. And and so you know, I was sort of annoyed that there's not even a minor premise right in their in their argument. Um, the the I suppose the minor premise would just be something like if great works of beauty exists, you know, then God exists. Um, but, uh, I tried to do a little bit more to unpack this. So there are different variations of, you know, arguments for God's existence from beauty. The, you know, the most straightforward is a kind of an evidentialist argument, which is to say that, you know, on Christian theism, so I'll talk about Christian theism specifically, you know, we would have, um, good reason for thinking that God would, you know, create a, a world with great amounts of beauty. Right. Um, the world does possess great amounts of beauty, uh, and so therefore this, you know, um, suggests that Christian theism is true. Together with this, we'd have to say that something like on naturalism, um, we have no good reason for thinking that uh, humans would possess capacities for appreciating beauty that don't seem strictly necessary for survival, nor that creation itself would possess these kinds of properties or possess great amounts of beauty. Making beauty is hard, right? Um Anybody who started to paint a painting will know. Um, yet the universe possesses great amounts of beauty, uh, and so, so again, you know, beauty is evidence for theism, not for naturalism. And so, uh, maybe I don't know how strong the, you know, um, how much this raises the probability of God's existence. Maybe just a little bit, um, but it's an argument that a lot of people do find compelling. Even atheists uh, frequently will say, "Yeah, you know, when I look at the sunrise, I look at the beauty of the world." It just, you know, this sort of shakes my my atheism. Various people have said this. I cite them in my my articles. It just seemed like there's something kind of fundamental about our experience of beauty that, you know, points toward a designer. World seems to be a great work of art. Um, if the world is a great work of art, mm-hmm. art this suggests that there's an artist. Mark Wynn 
uh, wrote a book called God and Goodness. He makes a similar sort of point, you know, which is that, you know, creating works of great beauty, you know, requires design. Um, so, you know, again, it takes training for artists to create works that we enjoy, you know, most of our base, our first attempts at, at art don't go terribly well. They're not very nice. Nothing that most people besides a parent might appreciate. Um, uh, yet the world possesses this great amount of beauty that suggests that there's this designer behind um, behind the world. And so um, I think it's a, a fairly intuitive and straightforward um, a piece of evidence for um, not just theism, but for, for Christian theism that uh, the, the world possesses much more beauty than is strictly necessary. Now, you might have some people push back and say, oh, well, but, you know, there's this evolutionary um, bias toward beauty appreciation. Perhaps beauty is necessary for survival. Being attentive to the sunset is helpful because it tells you when it's getting dark and um, you'll know to uh, go indoors and stay away from, uh, watch out for lions or tigers or something like that. Um, but uh, this doesn't particularly account very strongly with the way that we experience and enjoy beauty. We enjoy not just environments that are friendly toward human survival, but in fact, we find great beauty in uh, environments that are hostile to human survivals, you know, fjords or glaciers or, you know, snowstorms or um, lightning storms, you know, we, we appreciate the beauty of, it would seem just as equally, perhaps even more than, um, uh, safe and, you know, uh, human friendly spaces. Um, so the, uh, the, the sort of biophilia, evolutionary argument doesn't seem to me to be very compelling. I remember there was a story a few months ago, I think, about a, a volcano erupting somewhere in already stretching the cars. There's this overhead map of all the lava flowing places, and someone commented and said, you know, I, I'm very sorry for what people are going through, and it's horrible, but there's something beautiful about all that lava as well. And I could understand it. I mean, even if you see a tornado coming. You know it's a path of destruction, but there's still some sense of beauty there too. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we find the you know tigers beautiful, even though they're quite fearsome. You know, um, the, there are lots of things that are that are dangerous, but that we uh, we enjoy the the, the beauty of um, many aspects of creation, uh, which are uh, even unfriendly to our human survival. Mm. Yeah, let me ask something else about beauty as well and how we use it today. There's the story in the Gospels about a woman who has a jar of alabaster nard, I think it is, and she breaks it over Jesus' body and perfumes him with it. And Reverend disciples saying, you know, she could have sold that money and given it to the poor. Well, giving to the poor is such a good thing, but... We go and we look at these medieval cathedrals and places like this. They were built to be so beautiful, and it costs so, so much money to build them. Wouldn't it have been better to spend that money giving to the poor instead? Um, yeah, well, people do often raise that, you know, um, uh, about, you know, sort of buildings and, you know, and so forth. And, and of course, that that could, you know, equally apply to other 
you know, non-beautiful things. Well, you know, we pay the pastor, you know, so he can drive a decently nice car, but perhaps we could pay him less and he could drive a less nice car and, um, and we could give the money to the poor or, um, uh, we could turn off the heat in the building, um, as things like this. Uh, so it, you have to have in order for to properly invest in beautiful things that will continue to last to make that kind of investment. Um, you know, you have to have a deep and abiding sense that, that creating beautiful things truly matters. Um, and that it's a, not only are we as the church caring for people's bodies, um, which is important, but we also want to care for their souls. We, we don't just want to feed their ears with the truth, but we also want to fill their eyes with truth and great beauty. Um, and so uh, a, a holistic account of the human person is, I think, necessary. Um, beauty is, is not strictly necessary for life, but it is necessary for life as we would want to live it, mm. right? Um, and, and I think the, the outpouring of grief after the destruction of, um, at least of the steeple and the roof of, of Notre Dame points to, you know, how valuable truly, uh, great works of, of beauty can be. And so, um, I think it, I think it is, it is important. Um, so Jesus says, you know, well, the poor you will always have with you, but you know, this, this act will basically live on, um, forever. Uh, and so there is an excessiveness in a way to, you know, pouring out resources, uh, for acts of beauty, but also they can live on for a very long time. Um, and, you know, feed the souls of, of many people for thousands of years. Uh, so I, I the church should be stewarding wisely its resources, but part of that wise stewarding is to invest not just in short-term disposable buildings, say, or you know, uh, construction efforts or stained glass windows, but in things that, that have the possibility of lasting, people caring about over generations. I understand sometimes churches do need to meet in public places. Aaron and I used to attend a church that met at a movie theater, for example. <laughs> But do you think some churches are missing something when they don't try to build a beautiful place of worship? It more looks like it could be the lobby of an airport or your Starbucks or something like that. Uh, well, you know, this is a very complicated question and, and one that I'm I'm reluctant to. Some of this winds up, uh, you know, defaulting a little bit into uh, bad-mouthing the denomination down the streets or the, a church that I'm not a part of. Um, and so I, I tend to try and think more about the, you know, communities of which I'm, I'm a part. There are a lot of things bound up in the way that modern churches are built, but I, but I do think that it is the kind of thing that, um, uh, creating beautiful spaces, which we'll inhabit and not disposable spaces we don't care about is less a matter of resources and more a matter of the will. Um, it is, it is not that we, um, People of ages past, you know, possess far fewer resources than um, than we do. Um, part of the reason why uh, we const- they constructed such you know kind of gorgeous and lasting spaces is that they were stewarded by people who were trained and who understood the arts of the beautiful. Um, and and so if I, this is not this is not a matter of I don't think this is an issue of money. Um, I don't think this is even an issue of practicality. I think that beautiful places can be just as practical, um, useful, in fact, more so in many ways. Uh, it's largely just a matter that very often people who are making the decisions um, uh, don't care about you know creating something or know how to create something which is which is lastingly beautiful. Um, it's not always the case. Uh, there's a church here in Houston um, uh, that's 
very recently uh, built um, a lovely uh, church that's on, modeled on um, uh, a German, um, a large German church. It's gorgeous. Um, it it probably cost more than erecting a kind of a multi-purpose, you know, uh, worship space, but it will last far longer than, you know, than such a space. And, and so it, it is, is in fact still achievable if we have the, have the will to do so. I know my wife's, she's actually traveled overseas some. I haven't, but she's told me about going and seeing some cathedrals there and saying, you know, you you really seem to miss something when you come back because you get one of those cathedrals and you really think that the presence of God is right there. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, that, I think that that's important. You know, we, we obviously have a kind of a, uh, a view of, you know, spaces are sort of disposable, you know, church is really just intended to kind of spark internal states to us. Um, but there, there is a, a way in which, um, uh, beautiful spaces can intensify or help us to kind of experience, you know, kind of God's presence to make us look up, to kind of direct our souls as it were kind of upward away from ourselves, um, in a, uh, in a very helpful way. Um, I, I should also probably say that I'm not in trying to sound snobby about, you know, uh, utilitarian buildings. I've worshipped at churches that mm-hmm. meet in movie theaters, and there's a there's a particular kind of humble beauty to a, a church that's moving chairs into the school cafeteria or that's, you know, or that are meeting in, um, in strange places. The early church worshipped in catacombs. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I love the, I love the way that the church can be in all sorts of different places in all sorts of different ways. Um, but I, but I do think that for churches who are have the resources and who are intending to build long term, um, consulting trained artists, architects, people with refined sensibilities, people with a deeper sense of tradition, uh, can be quite helpful for building lasting buildings that that people will care about. Um, one of the great tragedies of the you know modern spaces that we inhabit is that they're not. Um, particularly lovely or anything we'd care about protecting. And so, you know, I think, um, I would, I lived in the university, I lived in St. Andrews. It's a beautiful town. I would feel quite devastated if something, you know, happened to that, you know, that three block, you know, uh, inner, uh, city is just gorgeous, you know, wonderful to inhabit. Uh, I would feel, I feel much less protective of the giant Walmart, um, and it's a parking lot that's, you know, adjacent to, a. um, you know, a strip mall in my hometown of Melbourne, Florida, it's disposable. Um, so we, you know, we, we feel protective of beautiful spaces. Um, they help our whole person as it were to engage and care about them. And so whatever we truly love, I think we, we instinctively want to ornament and make beautiful. We have people we love over for Thanksgiving dinner. We set the table, we light it with candles, we make it, we make it glow. And, and so ornamenting valuable things with beauty is a way of, yeah, engaging the whole human person and um, in loving rightly. I was thinking about something you said about being drawn into worship, and I think that's something else to consider, that different people get drawn into worship by different things. My wife is currently a catechumen in the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, and first time we went there together because she was going to check it out, I was thinking... Okay, well, that was interesting. I didn't care for the liturgy at all, and 
I sometimes think there's too many references to saints and Mary and other things instead of directly to Christ. But I left and I was thinking, oh, I, would, I didn't do much for me. And I was like, that was so beautiful. That was so orderly. And I know a lot of people can go to, say, Christian music concerts and get super excited by it and really praise God in it. And for me, I'm thinking, eh, that was okay. But I'm more looking at the songs and, gosh, the content of a theology in the song is horrible. Yet at the same time, though, what it really can get me excited and think about God in different ways is if I'm reading a book on apologetics or the Bible or philosophy and I get a new insight into how God works and who he is and things of that sort. You know, that, that gets me excited. And do you think there's a place to say that people do come to worship in very different ways and sometimes we seem to have a one-size-fits-all mentality to it? Uh, yeah, well, I think, that, I think that's the case. I mean, and, and it's, it's important in talking about you know, the art of the beautiful, not to focus only on what we would associate with high arts like, you know, architecture, or, you know, painting or stained glass, or um, think only about kind of old timey sorts of things. There's great beauty and um, the rhetoric of a, you know, a big tent revival preacher or in, you know, folk hymnody um, or uh, in um, the you know, the light show of a, you know, very contemporary uh, church. So, I mean, there are a lot of different ways uh, for things to, uh, to be, uh, to be beautiful and they're, they carry with them different <coughs> elements that, you know, that, that will affect uh, people differently. And so um, the, the, the church, um, different denominations have different strengths, uh, certainly. And, 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 you know, um, one doesn't want to entirely just focus only on high church as it were, as being the kind of the font of beauty. Um, I come from the Methodist tradition and, you know, Methodist tradition very often, these are circuit riders who are preaching, you know, from horseback in fields. And so their, their focus, uh, as it were, the kind of the aesthetics are in, you know, uh, a hymnody, which can be sort of sung easily and, um, by, uh, everyday people, uh, collectively they're in preaching, um, other churches excel at, um, liturgy or architecture. Um, and, and so, um, there are, there are different ways to, to approach those things, though, again, one doesn't want to just also default into uh, kind of a cafeteria-style approach of just, hey, just take whatever you like best. Part of the part of the value of um, engaging with tradition, with the things that are bigger than ourselves, is that we grow in our taste. So um, I, I think most people are, I would encourage most people not to just say, well, this is what I like, and so this is what I'm going to do, but to try and develop sensibilities, learn to appreciate and love kind of truth and argumentation and gaining theological insight. I think that's something Jesus calls us to. He says, love the Lord your God with all your mind, right? Um, Christian tradition is an intellectual tradition. It's a bookish tradition. Um, uh, we encourage people who aren't big readers to still read their Bibles. Um, and likewise, uh, philosophers and theologians who just like to sit around and think about things are encouraged to get out and uh, enjoy fellowship and communion and um, uh, time with other people as well. And so, uh, yeah, you want to have a holistic account of uh, human development and appreciation for sure. How can we as Christians come to see God as more beautiful? And, and 
If you're talking about, say, how can I see my wife as more beautiful? Well, that's pretty easy to me. She's standing right in front of me. I can see her. But with God, it's a whole lot harder to because you can't see him. And as soon as we try to think about him, we know we can't really form an image of him, even though that's our temptation of what we're wanting to do. How can we come to see God as more beautiful? Well, I mean, I do think that we can see God in the sense that we can image God. And so the, the very image of God um, is um, Jesus Christ. And, and the early Christian defense of, of images came from the incarnation. God has made himself visible in Christ. Um, and so we can certainly, there are things to look at mm-hmm. as a Christian. We look and look at the, um, the image of Christ on, on the cross and see the stages of Christ's life, see the various forms of beautiful sacrifice and teaching and compassion um, and um, scolding, you know, his fiery uh, scolding and and all these things and and learn to love these. But of course, one ascends, as it were, to kind of more intellectual forms of contemplation and beauty as well. A math theorem can be beautiful, an idea can be beautiful. Um, uh, They can, can possess, you know, elegance or complexity or some such thing as that. And the, the Trinity itself is this perfectly balanced, as it were, unity with complexity, three in one. Um, it, the Bible speaks of God in terms of light, um, there being kind of uh, a divine radiance, the light is beautiful. Um, and and so the, the features that, that make something, you know, beautiful, so things like being kind of uh, intense and yet um, also attractive, being complex and yet also unified. Um, these are things that we can intellectually appreciate as God. And of course, in you know many ways, I think we will, in some meaningful sense, we will behold, as it were, um, a vision of God ultimately, um, uh, and and be able to appreciate and enjoy that as well. So, um, of course, the Again, necessary for that appreciation is a holistic appreciation, which is to say that coming to love the good, right? Um, coming to uh, be rid of our sinful uh, habits and desires, that we can uh, fully love and enjoy God's holiness. These these things are necessary for um, for our enjoyment of of God's great beauty. What advice would you give for people who are in? the art industry or some other industry that's centered around beauty? Oh, well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, of course, I'm just a shabby academic um, who's, who's not particularly uh, uh, beautiful to look at. Um, my, uh, one of my children is, is quite devoted to um, visual art and is uh, high school dedicated to this. And my middle daughter uh, is quite dedicated to the violin and, and loves that. My wife used to be a, a fashion model and worked in the fashion industry. And um, uh, and, and so, I mean, I, my generally my advice for someone who's in the beauty industry would be the same as my advice for anyone who's in any sort of industry, which is to find the the ways that your craft and your work um, are enriched by. A, a good understanding of Christian theology, who God is, and and then pursuing your vocation in light of that. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, we tend to be dismissive of, um, say, the fashion industry or, or modeling as being kind of superficial and, and irrelevant. Um, but uh, it's it is real work with a real uh, craft that goes into it. And having seen behind the scenes, you know, filled with many uh, fine and delightful people. 
But um, as always, as with everything, as with working in insurance or uh, business or construction, um, I think there's a way to, you know, kind of find meaning, um, a deep meaning in, in the work that you're doing. Um, and then there will obviously be specific, you know, challenges, hazards, temptations, and so forth that uh, one will want to avoid. But um, overall, I would say that seeing the, that what one is doing in creating beauty is not uh, something superficial. Beauty is actually very deep. Mm. Um, it's not just on the surface. Uh, it, in fact, has deep meaning. And, and one can see that. I think then one, that helps to orient one's career and work toward the good. And we we have it's a great emphasis on pursuing the good and the true. What would you recommend those of us who are one who are here? Okay, I'm going to try and go out and see beauty more often. I mean, what what are some things we can do to better appreciate beauty? Mm. Uh, well, I, I, I teach I teach great books uh, uh, to undergraduates, and um, I, I don't think there are many. Educational uh, exercises better than pressing great books into the hands of uh, people and having them read them. Um, the books are one of our best ways of accessing the kind of the minds and works of art of the past, and so um, you know. And great works have stood the test of time, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of of works that. If a work is a thousand years old, but we're s- still finding value in it, it's a very good indication that there's something important in there and there's also a good indication that it will be valuable a thousand years from now and so we're investing in something that's um has deep meaning and so finding things that are tested by time is always good c.s lewis in his introduction to um athanasius on the incarnation you know recommends that people divide their reading between new books and old books kind of keep the uh, breeze of the past you know blowing through our minds keeps us from our overly modern outlook but also he says, very often you'll find that some old book is actually clearer and more beautifully written than a new book attempting to explain it. Uh, there's great beauty to be found there. And so I would, I would encourage people to pick up and, and engage with things that are made more than 100 years ago, and you'll often find works of great enrichment. We don't have enough time to go and discuss another question, which is a shame. Um, Dr. Town, do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm Googleable. Uh, I'm at Houston Baptist University, so if you just search my name, Phil Talon at uh, HBU, you'll probably find my information there, and, and anyone's, of course, welcome to, to email me. Uh, I don't tweet very much, uh, but I am on Twitter, Philip Talon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're looking for a book of mine to, to purchase, then I think the best one for this conversation would be to go check out two dozen or so arguments for God. It's a fine book um, with many great authors contributing to it. I'm by far the, you know, the most junior. I'm just a baby professor and surrounded by many great people like Richard Swinburne and William Lane Craig and, and others. And, um, and it's, a, it's an excellent book. You could read about this and, and many other uh, fine essays. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a deeper world's audience today? Uh, no, thanks. I mean, if you get a chance and somebody you know uh, plays a tabletop role-playing game, and I encourage you to go check it out. It's a, it's a, a, wonderful, um, it's a wonderful thing to do with friends. Uh, I thoroughly agree with that. I, I, I still enjoy good gaming around with any of my friends here. But Dr. Town, thank you for coming on here, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. 
Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much for turning me on. And I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have Craig Keener on talking about his book, Crystal Biography. What does it mean for the Gospels to be bi- Greco-Roman biographies? For now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth. And I'm signing off. <laughs>